I wonder if you realise that two-thirds of the world's vast expanse of ocean sits outside the jurisdiction of any nation, which has made protecting the high seas and their abundant marine biodiversity nigh on impossible. However, last weekend there was a major breakthrough. After years of tense negotiations, UN member countries agreed on a high seas treaty to place 30% of open ocean into marine protected areas by 2030. And there's a lot of excitement in conservation circles that this could improve protection of marine life in international waters, where all countries have the right to fish and do research, meaning there's a lack of protection from overfishing. Now, once ratified, the treaty will also become part of the law of the sea. That's an area of law most of us are probably unaware of. So the history of humanity's efforts to govern the oceans is really a fascinating one. It's been set out in a new book titled The Poseidon Project, The Struggle to Govern the World's Oceans. The authors, Professor David Bosco from uh, Indiana University, uh, and uh, David, you're certainly, I'm welcoming you now, you're certainly quite a distance from the ocean in Indiana. You must have done a fair bit of field work in gathering information for this book. I, I like to think that in Indiana, I'm kind of impartial as between the different oceans. But uh, yeah, I did I did quite a bit of research in in libraries, to be honest. But uh, but also, uh, you know, a, a fair number of interviews with folks. Maybe you could start by telling us about the development of the doctrine of the law of the sea. Take us back to the 15th century and a young lawyer called Hugo Grotius. And there's some important context to understand here, isn't there? Yeah, it's a fascinating history. So if we go back to that period, it's really the Spanish and the Portuguese who are kind of leading the way in terms of ocean exploration. And and they actually come up with a treaty that divides the world's oceans between the two of them. And this is with the involvement of the Pope. And um, they actually draw a line in the sea and say kind of this side is Spain and this side is Portugal, which leaves everybody else out. And so it's the Dutch who challenge that claim and they want to get involved in the Indian Ocean trade. And uh, the Portuguese tell them, no, you can't be here. This is basically our ocean. And so the Dutch, you know, resort to force and they actually seize a Portuguese vessel and auction off its contents. And, and that's where Grotius comes into the story, because the Dutch want to make a legal argument as to why they're allowed to go wherever they want on the ocean. And so Hugo Grotius, who I think was all of uh, 22, 23 years old at the time, is hired to write that legal brief, essentially. And um, that's where he puts forward this famous doctrine of the freedom of the seas, that basically the ocean should be open to everybody and no country should be able to to claim them. And that has a really important influence then, uh, you know, as we get to the present day on, on the law of the sea. Had there been any laws or norms governing human activity before Mare Librum, which was his treatise on the subject? There had been some, but, you know, we have to remember we're talking about a period where mostly use of the oceans was close to shore. The ability of, of you know, humans to use the kind of distant ocean was rather limited. And so in that sense, it, it, you didn't need a lot of regulation because there wasn't a lot of traversing of oceans. But yeah, there were there were certainly codes, of, particularly about, you know, merchants and, and 
what rules would govern merchants, you know, things like what happens if there's a shipwreck, who pays for the lost cargo, those kinds of things. The Romans, of course, had at one point encircled the entire Mediterranean, and so they had some important rules and norms governing um, the ocean. But in many ways, the bigger question of how we govern the oceans as a whole was really being developed around that time of Grotius, because it was only then that humans were understanding the full scope of the oceans. I mean, there's a long interlude, isn't there, between Grotius and the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and, you know, two world wars, incredible developments. What was the impetus, would you say, that led to that treaty? Right. And the treaty, as you mentioned, was signed in the early 1980s, but they started negotiating it. I mean, they really started the process of negotiating it in the late 1950s. And so, it was a long, long process. You know, whole generations of diplomats worked on that uh, on that process. But basically what had happened was Grotius had made this argument about the freedom of the seas, which was very persuasive to many people and had become basically the kind of foundation for the law of the sea that existed at that point. But it, around the time of the world wars and then, you know, the second half of the 20th century, human ability to use the oceans and control the oceans has really increased exponentially. And during the world wars, for example, some of the combatants were able to close off essentially huge portions of the ocean. We had the phenomenon of unrestricted submarine warfare, which put enormous strains on on international commerce, uh, maritime trade. And then right after World War II, the United States actually acting pretty much on its own made these claims that they get to control the continental shelf, that kind of shallow area that extends from the continent. Um, And they said unilaterally, we control that. And that led to a whole round of other national claims to controlling ocean space. So some of the Latin American countries said, okay, then if you're going to do that, we have a 200-mile territorial sea that we get to control. And so the whole state of the law was really in chaos if we look at the 1950s, 1960s. There's just all sorts of different claims being made. And that was the impetus then for this treaty negotiation to try to establish some basic norms um, and some framework for the international community. Well, and interestingly, there are 168 signatories to the treaty now, but it doesn't include the United States. That's right. And of course, the, you know, the phenomenon of the United States not signing on to major international treaties is not new. But the United States played a critical role in the, in the negotiation of the treaty. And this is kind of a pattern with the U.S. where they, they get heavily involved in the negotiations and then at the last minute kind of decide not to sign on. And the U.S. is actually OK with and, and really supports the basic framework created by the treaty which says, okay, you get a 12-mile territorial sea. Every country can claim 12 miles. You get a 200-mile exclusive economic zone where you can control fishing and other economic uses. These were, this was the basic compromise created by the treaty. And the United States is fine with that. What they don't like and what led them not to sign was these provisions for international control of seabed mining. Um, right. How? But can right, I can you know, I just how, come in? Well, 
Yeah. Because ironically, you know, the business of America is business. Obviously, that's what pertains there. But they like the freedom of the seas when when US naval exercises uh, are at stake, you know, a la yeah. sailing through the South China Sea. And they're called, you know, Australia's often called on to take part in them called freedom of navigation yeah. operations. So, I mean, this is a little um, contradictory, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is in some ways. So basically, right, the US position is we are kind of the lead defender of freedom of the seas and freedom of navigation. And they say what we're defending is the basic international rule book, which lays out, you know, how far a country can claim into the ocean. And so what we see with you, just as you mentioned, the freedom of navigation operations, U.S. warships, often sometimes joined by others, will travel through areas of the South China Sea where, you know, China is making claims and say, no, we're allowed to go here. We're allowed to go here by the treaty. Uh, We have that freedom and we're going to travel through um, to show that we have that freedom. So that part of what the U.S. is doing is arguably consistent with the law of the sea. But what the United States cannot abide is this international structure for managing seabed mining. I mean, it's about power by the sound of it. You know, that's what I'm hearing right back to the 15th century. People yeah. sort of exert that- themselves, um, muscle their way in and yes. get their way. Well, this is an important thing that I think sometimes the United States doesn't recognise when it talks about, you know, the importance of freedom of the seas. There is a huge element of power here. And the British realized this, too, because the British had become, you know, if we go back to the early 19th century, they, too, were talking a lot about freedom of the seas. And for the largest naval power, freedom of the seas has a real benefit for them because their ships, then their warships can basically go almost anywhere on the oceans and they can project power on the oceans. Um, And so some of what you see now you know, is China saying, we're not comfortable with your aircraft carriers coming so close. And and some other countries actually share China's point of view, although China is acting in such a kind of reckless way in some respects that it's hard for them to gin up much of a coalition. Um, But yeah, there's a huge element of power here and and the interests of kind of the leading maritime power to be able to go Mm. where they want on the oceans. There are a range of countries you point out to to us uh, with exclusive economic zones. Iran, Pakistan, yes. certainly not a powerful country, India, Thailand, Malaysia are yes. all falling into that category. And yet China's the one particularly targeted, which, of course, does make one think about, again, big geostrategic competition. So does that that's sort of yes. still a dominating force despite this treaty, is it? It is. It is. But and what you're pointing out is exactly correct, that some of these other countries um, also make claims that the U.S. believes are out of keeping with the law of the sea. Like you can't send your military ships into my exclusive economic zone. The U.S. view is, you know, that violates the, the law of the sea. And there's, you know, some legal debate that can be made about this. I think the U.S. actually has the better of the argument there. But the point is that many of these countries are uncomfortable having another country's navy be able to get so close to its coast. 
And the U.S. will sometimes challenge those claims, too. It's the ones with China get the most attention. But the U.S., you know, not long ago sent a ship through India's exclusive economic zone, too, just to show that it could. But for sure, the, the dynamic with China right now is the, is the centerpiece of kind of this struggle about what the rules for the ocean are going to be. But look, there are, just sort of really coming towards the end, there are two other key areas. The seabed mining, which is, you know, the technology for which is becoming more and more available. And you wonder, you know, that'll presumably be only the wealthiest nations and companies that can do that. So how's that going to be monitored? And environmental protection. I mean, whose responsibility is it to protect the waters and the animals and the seabeds of international waters? Anybody's? Yeah, that's a great, great point. These are, I I agree with you. I think these are the two main challenges going forward. Seabed mining, as I mentioned, has this international structure in place. And there's a kind of obscure international agency based in Jamaica, which has responsibility for licensing and regulating any deep seabed mining. But really, that industry is just on the cusp of becoming an actual you know, going concern. And so whether that international structure is going to work is something we're going to see, I think, in the coming years. On the environmental front, there's a big negotiation going on right now up at the UN on trying to increase environmental protections for the high seas, because just as you say, there's not a lot in that treaty, that 1982 treaty, about protecting the environment, particularly, you know, the high seas. And so there's a, a, a complex effort to try to create new regulations for that. There are all these regional fishing organizations which have sprung up, which try to, and, and Australia has been a, you know, an active participant in some of them, where that try to regulate fishing in a particular area of the oceans. But I would say our infrastructure for protecting the high seas from an environmental standpoint is really at the kind of very rudimentary level right now. Uh, And look, I mean, what about unmanned shipping, uh, which is currently being developed? You know, does the treaty need to be amended to take that into account? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of things on the technological front that have to be tweaked. But as, as we know from so many different areas, the effort to create binding international rules when you're talking about getting 160, 170 countries together is a long and arduous process. And that's why in some situations you've got smaller groups of countries that have decided, fine, we're just going to do this on our own um, and create Mm -hmm. some rules that bind this group rather than the whole group. But then you've got the problem of if you do that, say, with fishing, what happens if some other country wants to come in and fish in that area? They can say, we're not bound by what you agreed to. Um, so this is a dilemma is that, you know, we end up with kind of a lowest common denominator when, you, when you're talking about the large international negotiations. How very interesting. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Professor David Bosco. He's Associate Professor of International Studies at Indiana University and his book is called The Poseidon Project, The Struggle to Govern the World's Oceans. It's an Oxford University Press publication. Uh, And I hope you can stay with me here on Saturday Extra. Um, Just one text, a lot of texts have come in as a result of our discussion. One text that said simply, what about our preparedness for peace? Why can't we have series on that? Yes, well, (laughs) 
Maybe they'll come. Next up here, a look at some of the first anthropologists and their colourful, unconventional, free-thinking lives. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.